Good morning. It is good to be with you again. And it is a great joy and privilege to pray for Veritas Church. Do give you greetings on behalf of Emmanuel Baptist Church, just as you pray for us. Um, It is that sweet fellowship in the gospel and the participation in the gospel that we have in Christ to be able to pray for you as well. And also just that sweet fellowship and privilege to serve Veritas Church by uh, sending some of our guys your way, and I think you're right in the middle of an IBC trilogy right now. Um, (laughs) Last week you had the professor, this week you have the German, next week you have the Irishman, so it sounds like a really bad joke, but um, we trust the Lord doing what he wants to do, and thankful that Pastor Eric gets a little bit of time away. Uh, This morning, we are in the book of Philippians, so if you're not already there, would you go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Our focus this morning is just upon these two verses, Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13. As we come before God's Word, would you join with me in praying and asking Him to help us not only in the hearing and the preaching, but for the good fruit that we long for to come from, from God's word. Father, this morning we come to you in the name of Christ, and we are so thankful that, as we have sung this morning, that uh, everything, uh, not only that, that we do throughout our weeks, but even in our approach of you this morning, is not because of us, but because of Christ And if it is within that same humility and that same anticipation that we come before your word. Father, we receive by faith the promise that you've given to us that your word is effective, that it is powerful. That it's through your word that you accomplish your purposes in our lives and through your church. And so as we have heard your word read and it is now here before us and we anticipate it being expounded and proclaimed, Lord, we come by faith, and we do come in great faith because it is you who cause your word to bear fruit. It is you that cause life to spring forth, for there is death. It's you who cause good fruit to, to be born where there is only barrenness. And Lord, we know all of this comes through your word. And so, Lord, would you do that here this morning? Would you cause your word to work among us? Would you cause your word to give clarity and um, great, um, again, just great focus into to what we want to accomplish, see you accomplish in our lives. We pray that you would do this because we so desperately need it, but ultimately that you would do it for the glory of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Well, here we are in the middle of the book of Philippians, and it is a letter that if you're familiar with, you know, reveals the deep pastoral love of Paul for this church at Philippi. And at the same time, this reciprocal love of this body of believers for the Apostle Paul, who was there amongst them and their concern for him. Uh, This letter was one of those letters, one of those epistles that was written by Paul while imprisoned in Rome. And it is out of that very context that the church in Philippi hears of this and, and has this concern. As they get word that their beloved Apostle is not having all of this freedom to preach the gospel, but it has been since detained in Rome. They become concerned, and they they send one of their members, Epaphroditus, on a 700-mile journey 
laden with gifts and provisions for Paul to care for him. And as Epaphroditus comes to see Paul, he finds out his condition is actually much worse, and so he stays there longer to minister to Paul. And upon his return, Paul sends with him his response to his brothers and sisters at Philippi by the hand of Epaphroditus, reminding them of God's faithfulness, letting them know that what has happened to me has actually served to further the gospel of Christ, and I'm rejoicing, and I'm calling upon you, brothers and sisters, to rejoice as well. And so it's in the middle of that context that we drop down this morning into Philippians chapter 2. And so as we come to just two verses in the midst of this letter, it would be good to stop and just remind ourselves that it is precisely this, a letter that we're dropping into the middle of a conversation, that we're dropping into the middle of a, of a stream of thought that Paul is, has as he, as he writes to his brothers and sisters there in Philippi. And so as we just zoom in on two verses this week like this, we must not forget that portions of Scripture like this are not isolated fragments. And even as the Scripture was read this morning, it, that last phrase, that last stanza might have even sounded so familiar to us that we have memorized it. And it would do us good to remember that it's not just an isolated memory verse in the midst of, of nothing, that it has context. And that's something that is also very important that I know that you are taught well and that you seek to do, that anytime we pick up our Bibles to read and study them, uh, that the matter of context has to be upon our minds especially with a portion of Scripture that may be familiar to us, lest we detach it somehow from what God's intention might actually be for us. By context, we mean what comes before this and what comes after this determines how we rightly understand what lies in between. And I mention all of this because of Paul's word in verse 12, Therefore, what he stresses in verses 12 and verses 13, our focus this morning, is directly shaped by what he has just said previously. If you look back over in your Bibles, back up to chapter 1 and verse 27, it reveals his concern for these Philippian believers that their manner of life would be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So this grand charge to live as citizens of the gospel is sharply focused then by the therefore in verse 12. Live as citizens of Christ. And then as you fast forward, therefore. And as you look at chapter 2, verse 5, his command to them to have the mind of Christ in all of their interactions with one another. He reminds them this is not just Christ's mind, but it is in you by the very fact that you belong to him. And so this is pressed further by the therefore in verse 12. And then verses 6 through 11 is, Paul writes, considering the humility and the certain exaltation of Christ, it's brought home by the therefore in verses 12 and 13. So here's the, the big idea. The gospel, I think we would agree, most certainly announces this, this salvation for sinners. But this salvation that it speaks of, it's not stagnant. It's not just a historical event of what God did in Christ. It is active. This gospel is alive. It is effectual in its daily outworking of our lives. And so you could say that this is a salvation that works. 
And that is what is before us this morning. And so what I want to do is look at this from, from three angles. And if it's helpful for you to help make sense of the passage or to follow the direction of thought, we'll be along these lines. We need to consider, first of all, the place of obedience. And then we need to consider the pursuit of salvation. And then finally, the promise in our efforts. The place of obedience, the pursuit of salvation, and the promise in our efforts. First, let's consider this place of obedience. Looking back at verse 12, where Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Notice that for Paul, the issue of obedience here was something he just assumed. Their obedience was something, as he said, that had always been done and something that he expects them just to continue on into. For Paul, it's not a matter of if you obey, but how you go about your obedience. Now, in saying that, we can make a couple of, of, of observations. We can surmise a couple of things from this. First of all, just to stay at kind of a, as a foundational level, if this is true, then this means that obedience is good. It might seem blatantly obvious, but it's so important to think about this for a moment. Because in our zeal to uphold the goodness of grace, we can sometimes um, misunderstand the place of obedience within Christianity. How obedience relates to the gospel. We can mistakenly think that to call others to obedience or even to stress the necessity of obedience is somehow to wander into the dangers of legalism. Do you follow? Somehow that we equate obedience with automatically legalism. But if we look at Philippians 2, we can see that's the furthest thing from Paul's mind. Now let's be clear. Legalism is substituting human efforts in the place of Christ. Legalism believes that somehow we can obtain or even maintain what is promised to us in the gospel by our zeal or by our obedience. And this is deadly. It is deadly, and it is anti-gospel. It is anti-Christ. But notice, grace does not somehow nullify obedience, erasing all of its importance. No, actually what grace does is it reorients our obedience, putting obedience in its proper place as God has desired. John 14, 15. The words of Christ come to mind. If you love me, keep my commandments. There, obedience is put within its, its proper place. Uh, if we think about Christ's words in, in the Great Commission, the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus came to them and said, All authority has been given unto me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. Behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. 
And as we put these various scriptures together, it becomes clear Jesus' instruction was this. Disciples seek obedience. And it's just part and parcel with being a follower of Christ that we love his commandments and we teach others to obey all that he has commanded. That means obedience in and of itself is a good thing because God himself has set it before us. Now, have you ever watched or participated in a track meet and noticed what happens when, when the starting gun goes off? You do not ever see a contestant just start meandering down the track in, in any direction that they like. Nor will you ever hear any participant say, well, hey, we have these jerseys and we have these nice little paper numbers, you know, clipped to our jerseys. So I guess that means we're on the team. So it really doesn't matter what we do now, does it? No, if you go to a track meet, you see these participants are pursuing the finish line. They are, they are single focused in what they are doing. And so just as a runner pursues the finish line, it would be safe to say that a Christian pursues obedience. Now, we not, must never be afraid of the exhortations towards obedience in Scripture or exhorting one another towards obedience, mistakenly thinking that a desire for obedience is automatically a desire for legalism. We just need to be careful in that in our love for grace and the importance of, the, of grace within the gospel. Obedience is good. It is the worthy and proper response to the word of God and the announcement of the gospel. In fact, one major evidence of the gospel's effective working in our lives is a growing and greater desire to honor God as we seek to obey him. That is the great fruit of the gospel. We say, I want to please my heavenly father, who by grace has saved me out of, out of death and hell. And we do nothing, nothing greater than, than to please him in this. Obedience is good. But Paul's concern here, above and beyond that, that not only obedience is good, but our obedience must be genuine. This is the emphasis there in the latter half of verse 12. Paul's emphasis is that their obedience would be consistent regardless if he was freed from Rome and came to see them or if he remained in prison. Whether I come to see you or I remain as I am, that you would be found obeying as you have always obeyed. Now, we all know the temptation that Paul speaks of here, don't we? To watch our speed only when black and white is within view. To keep our eyes on the test, only when we know that the teacher is looking. To keep our stories in the realm of honesty and truth, when we know that those who know the truth are actually present. But Christian obedience is not dependent upon these earthly authorities. Christian obedience is not dependent upon the authorities of apostles or policemen, or parents, or pastors. Why? Because of the great biblical truth that we live before the face of God. The reformers used a Latin phrase for this, quorum Deo. In fact, the big idea of the Christian life could be summed up and expressed in this way. To live quorum Deo is to live your entire life 
before the awareness of the presence of God over every aspect of your life, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. To live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever you are doing or wherever you are at, we are under the gaze of God. Now, that sort of awareness is not a reluctant submission to a sovereign God, which just says, he sees everything, so I guess I better toe the line. Now, the Christian understanding of that living before the gaze of God is that there is no greater good I can do than to honor God in all of life. That's why it was so central to the, to the understanding of our reformational faith. Therefore, this means that one of the fruits of conversion One of the evidences in which God has worked in us, giving us new hearts and new desires, is this newfound desire to obey God. For those of you who have been born again, for those of you who have put your faith in Christ, think about your own testimony of what your life was like before you were converted. Before you were born again, you had very little desire to please God from the heart. You had very little concern as to, will this honor God or not? Now, God in His grace gives us all a conscience, and God in His grace convicts us. But from the heart, there was not this daily concern of, how can I please God? Or this growing desire that grew bigger and stronger and louder, saying, I want to honor God. See, that comes as a result of being born again. Christians want to obey their heavenly Father. So if all of this is true, and this is Paul's concern for the church at Philippi, it would be good to ask ourselves, the church here in Placer County and Sacramento County, what sort of thought have I given to my own obedience? I don't know if that's something that we do on a frequent basis. Uh, any sort of frequency, really. What about matters of home and family? Kids, how much thought have you given to obedience to God through honoring your parents? Because that is a major way at your stage in life right now that you honor God, that you obey God through the honoring of your parents. How much thought do we give to our own matters of speech? Speaking only what is true. Not spreading slander. Not gossiping. How much thought do we give to matters of our own hearts? Um, The ongoing battles of coveting what our friends have. Uh, The ongoing battles of of envying what they do have. Lusting over what we want to have. See, by God's grace, what Paul is saying is we've been given the mind of Christ and now obedience towards God becomes our great love and this ever-pressing delight that whether I come to see you or I remain, that you would be obeying. And he's going to go on to clarify this, not only the place of our obedience, but we secondly need to consider the pursuit of our salvation. There's this place for obedience, and then what's the direction that we're moving in this obedience? The pursuit of salvation. Look at the the last half of verse 12. 
where he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I'm willing to bet that as soon as I just read those words, work out because of our American Western culture, we, probably most of us, thought of one particular thing, hitting the, hitting the gym, working out. You thought of your CrossFit routine that you've abandoned and you're in shame because of it. We hear work out and immediately think, let's exercise, let's get the cardio up. That's somewhat of an American reading into a colloquial term, an idiom that is not exactly the emphasis of, of, of what Paul is after here. It's in part, but it's not the, the thrust of what Paul is after. Work out your own salvation. In the language that he used to write to the Philippians, it had more of this idea of working out a result to completion. So bring something to its desired end. Okay, so we might use this word in, in another phrase if a math teacher gives uh, a student a worksheet of problems and says, hey, work these problems out. Work out this equation. Well, that you would understand and say, okay, I'm going I'm to bring this through its logical conclusion. I'm going to bring this to the sum of what all this is pointing towards. It's more in that sense where Paul is saying, work out your own salvation. There's an end towards this. And I want you to be striving towards that. That is the emphasis here in, in Philippians 2. So let's ask a couple of questions of our text here to rightly understand and apply what does this mean to work out our own salvation? The first question we need to ask is, is a what question. Paul, what are we pursuing here? Well, he says, work out your own salvation. Okay, so I'm pursuing salvation. Now that right there can derail us very quickly. It's helpful to remember that when the Bible speaks of salvation, it's more than just simply conversion. And for some reason, when we read salvation, we often substitute just conversion. And do you know what I mean by conversion? That moment where you, where you went from a dead man to a living man, where you went from darkness to light, where you went from wrath to child of God, this moment of conversion where God does something in you. And for some reason, we kind of put parentheses around that and say, that's what salvation is. That's when I got saved. We'll sometimes just equate the two. But in the Bible, salvation, yes, it is conversion. But it's, it's bigger than just a moment of conversion. When we think about salvation according to the Bible, we recognize that it includes, okay, God accepts us. And by this we mean he pardons us. He forgives us. He accepts us as righteous, not because we are righteous, but because he is righteous, because Jesus is righteous, and Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us, it's given to us, it's credited to us, and we are declared not guilty. It's an announcement, it's a declaration. And this is what we call justification. That's a part of salvation. And I would just ask you right here, do you know that? Do you experientially know that announcement of God declaring over you because of Christ not guilty, pardoned, accepted? That is a part of what it means to be saved. But the Bible also speaks not just of the fact that he accepts us. It, it goes on, if you can imagine it, even higher. And it says he adopts us. Not only does he accept you, he adopts you. Our gracious heavenly father does, 
not just say you're forgiven and you're pardoned and leave us to ourselves. He says you're forgiven, you're pardoned. Now come here. You are mine. You belong to me. He welcomes us into his own family. He makes us to become his own children. He causes us to be inheritors of his state and brothers and sisters of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. He adopts us. And that's what we call adoption. But there is another aspect of salvation that we must not leave off. He not only accepts us, he not only adopts us, he also changes us. It's an ongoing work. It's a work that begins at that moment of conversion, but it's carried throughout the entire life, and it's not completed until we breathe our last breath and we stand in the presence of God. This is called sanctification. We need to keep the fullness of our salvation in mind. When we read a verse like this that says, work out your own salvation, lest we be led astray into thinking wrongly about what Paul is exhorting us to do. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, which is this this, the central point in the New Testament explaining what the gospel is. And notice what it does with this word, salvation. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Being saved. The 1689 Confession of Faith in chapter 13 gives, gives great attention to this word sanctification. Listen to how it sums up the biblical teaching of sanctification. This sanctification extends through the whole person, though it is never completed in this life. Some corruption remains in every part. From this arises a continual and irreconcilable war with the desires of the flesh against the desires of the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. In this war, the remaining corruption may greatly prevail for a time. Yet, through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part overcomes. So the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. They pursue a heavenly life in gospel obedience to all the commands that Christ as head and king has given to them in his word. What a wonderful summary of the biblical teaching of sanctification. Now, let me just stop and ask to make sure we're tracking. Why am I belaboring this point? The reason is that because of this possibility of confusion over the work Paul speaks to and its place within our salvation. Let me be clear. We do not contribute to our salvation in the sense that we bring about our right standing before God. We do not work our salvation that we contribute to the Father's pleasure of us as He adopts us as sons. Now what Paul is saying is here that we labor in our pursuit of godliness because we belong to God. Because that is already true of us in Christ. And so as we read our New Testament, what we find that this two-pronged effort towards pursuing salvation, towards pursuing godliness. This two-pronged approach is that on one hand we kill, on the other hand we cultivate. Any of you who are trying to maintain your vegetable gardens right now, 
you are right in the thick of it, of what you are trying to kill, as these weeds are just growing like, as they say, weeds, and as you are trying to cultivate your precious vegetables. You know that it's a two-pronged approach. You can't just throw water on out there because you'll know you'll have a massive pile of weeds and little bitty tomatoes. You know that you can't just kill everything because you'll have a scorched earth backyard. You have to kill and you have to cultivate. And lo and behold, this is exactly what the New Testament speaks of. We have to kill certain thoughts, certain habits, certain ambitions in our life that are opposed to God and his character. We're just one letter over. Turn over in your Bibles to the book of Colossians if you want to have some real teeth to this, to some fine points of what the scriptures mean when it's talking about killing and cultivating. Colossians 3. Verse 5. Put to death. Put to death, therefore, What is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put all of them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And we put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. It would be good and profitable to sit down and ask, what are those thoughts of our own lives? What are those habits? What are those ambitions that are opposed to God and his character? That, brothers and sisters, is your kill list. That is what you put the target over. That is what we kill as we pursue obedience, as we work out our salvation, there are certain things that we are saying, this must go because it's no longer fitting with who I am because I am Christ. Not only are we killing, though, we're also cultivating. We're not just hunters. We're also farmers because that same list keeps going. There are areas that we are to cultivate, areas of godliness that we're to be seeking after. If you look back at Colossians, Paul continues, verse 12. If you want a a focused list of what ought I be praying for that would be cultivated in my life, he says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I would encourage each of us to take this list, first of all, personally. Take time to prayerfully read through this list of what we must put to death and what we must put on. Examine your life prayerfully. And then I would encourage you to take another further step to read this list, not only privately, but to read it in community and ask those that know you best. Ask those that love you with the love of Christ and ask them humbly, what ought I be killing? What can you see in my life 
that needs to be done away with? And what can you see by God's grace that he is cultivating? It's helpful sometimes to have a reflection other than your own image, your own idea of how you're doing. And that's why God saves us into his own body. That's why he places us as members within his church. Kids, that's why God has given you parents. Husbands, wives, that's why he's given you spouses. That's why he's given you brothers and sisters here with this own body. That we collectively pursue obedience, not as isolated individuals, but as the body of Christ by his own design. What are we pursuing? But the second question we need to consider in this pursuit of salvation is the how question. How do we go after this? Well, Paul qualifies this in 12, saying that this effort is to be done with what? Fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For good reason. Because maybe you found this like I have. There are two errors that we can make in regards to what this actually means. Each error has to do with some distortion of God and his character. We completely misunderstand what it means to work this out with fear and trembling. The first distortion is this, that we imagine such a tame and benevolent God that never challenges us. He never confronts us. He never demands too much of us. Therefore, we have no category for fear because he sounds just a lot like our own inner dialogue. Amazingly enough, he sounds a lot like me. I love this guy. And so to read a passage that says to work this out with fear and trembling, that's like, I don't even know what that means because I don't have a God that I fear. That's a distortion of the biblical God. But there's another distortion that we can also make It's in the opposite direction, that we can have such contorted views of God's glory and his holiness and majesty that he becomes a cold and distant ruling authority, but in no way a loving father. And so we live in dread that God may just wash his hands of us at at any moment, cowering through our Christian life. That is equally as wrong. So the proper emphasis here upon fear and trembling, I believe is best understood when we just keep it in the context of what Paul has been laying out. What has come just before this? Well, this great portion of Philippians in chapter 2. And what do we read in that portion? Well, we have a view of Christ in his great humility. We have this view of Christ that he is a servant of sinners sacrificed upon a cross. There is no more compelling image of Scripture and the gentleness and mercy of God than of His own Son crucified for sinners. That compels us, come to this God. And at the same time, we read that the same Christ has been exalted to this place of rightful authority that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That causes us to fall on our faces and say, He is worthy. So when you just listen to Paul's language, you see and you are given a view of God and the gospel that says we are humbled in who Christ is, but we are compelled to come to him because of the grace of God in Christ. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So when we read of fear, it is this sense of 
reverent submission to God that leads us to glad obedience, to draw near to God, not to flee from Him. If your impression is to flee from God, it is because you have not met His Son, Christ. A right view of Christianity simultaneously humbles us, but then it compels us with deep reverence and awe to draw near. Church, this is the proper perspective that will keep us on target as we work out our own salvation, as we kill and as we cultivate. This is why Charles Spurgeon said this, If Christ has died for me, ungodly as I am, without strength as I am, then I cannot live in sin any longer. I must arouse myself to love and serve Him who has redeemed me. I cannot trifle with the evil that has killed my best friend. That was his perspective. I think that's Paul's perspective here. A sinner who responds to the gospel pursues godliness with a sense of reverence and with a sense of awe. Well, there's the place of obedience. There's the pursuit of our salvation. Let's, let's end by looking at this, this third portion. There's a promise in our efforts. There's a promise in our efforts. Look at it in verse 13 of Philippians 2. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. There's a very important word here. It has only three letters. You probably overlooked it, but I think it's the most important word in this entire clause. It's the word for. It's so important because it helps us answer the motive question. We could summarize it as this. Be obedient to carry out your salvation to the end that God intended. And as you pursue godliness, do so with a sense of reverent fear and awe. Why, Paul? What you answer right here reveals so much about what you understand the gospel to be and what you understand Christian living to be. Why, Paul? Why do we pursue obedience? Why do we pursue godliness with a sense of fear and trembling? Because if we don't, we'll be punished? Is that it, Paul? Is that the motive? Because if we don't, we'll be deeply ashamed and embarrassed? Is that it? Because if we do, I'll feel better about myself? Is that it? No. Our motive for obedience and godliness is not guilt, it's not shame, it's not pride, it's grace. That is the answer to the motive question. That is what compels every Christian to pursue obedience to the glory of God because of grace. We obediently work out our salvation because it is God who's working in us to will and work. That is grace right there. Literally, don't miss this. He is working in you, Christian, the desire and the ability to do what pleases Him. Think of those two things. God is pouring into your life the desire and the ability to obey Him, to please Him. That means that the power to obey does not come from within you, but God Himself. How many times have you looked at a project around the house and said, man, if I just had the energy this weekend, I would tackle that. And you let it go by. 
Or other times, you know how it works. You have the energy. Thankful I have the energy, but I would so much rather spend this energy on something else. Now, a Christian takes great comfort in knowing that the issues of desire and the issues of energy for godliness are ours because God is working in them, in us. Let me say it plainly, Christian. God is presently working in you to desire what pleases him. That is a part of your salvation. He is working in you to desire what pleases him. He is working in his people new desires to grow less and less infatuated with particular sins, particular temptations. He's working in his people genuine desire to turn from sin, to flee temptation instead of flirting with it. That's what he does by his grace. He's working in us greater desire for holiness, this greater desire for communion with him. But, Christian, God is also working in you presently the energy to work for his pleasure. He doesn't just give you the desire and leave you crippled. He gives you also the energy to say, I'm going to rise up and please him. I'm going to rise up and honor him. The very ability, the very effort to pursue godliness, to read, to meditate on scripture, to worship, to pray, to serve, being worked in us by God himself. So, let's be clear in what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying, God accepts you as you are, therefore, no need for any change in your life. No, Paul is saying, God accepts you in Christ, and therefore, change is possible. Change is what God is about in you. That is the reality of Christian salvation. This means that my will is engaged to fight sin and pursue godliness with blood-bought power. Not just willpower. Not just determination. Not just the fear of being found out. Not just the fear of punishment. But my will is infused with blood-bought power to kill and to cultivate. That is the truth of what it means to be a Christian, to be in Christ. Church, this is a promise of such great encouragement. It's something that we must preach to ourselves on a regular basis as you and I wrestle with sin and put to death the deeds of the flesh. That we remind ourselves, I am not alone in this pursuit, but that God himself is working in me to desire what pleases him. This is the promise of God that's given to every believer, to every Christian. Therefore, we ought to be praying regularly. Continue your work in me. Father, continue your work in me that I might will and work for your good pleasure. Continue to give me greater desire to please you. Give me greater hatred for this sin. Not just because of the shame that I would feel, but because it killed my best friend, as Spurgeon would say. It killed Christ himself because it would honor you. So what we can say is this. The sovereignty of God in our salvation and sanctification is not permission to be passive, but it's a reason for confident hope. God gives us the desire 
And he also works in the energy to will and to work for his good pleasure. Again, in context, what this means, that if we have the mind of Christ, does it not follow then, Christian, that we will desire and strive after the very same things that Christ himself sought? If you have the mind of Christ, aren't you going to be pursuing what he pursued, desiring what he desired? That's the implication of what Paul is saying here in context. Jesus, who desired to do the will of the Father to such a degree that he called it his food and drink. Jesus, who sought always to be about the Father's business, laboring for this. And Paul says, you have the mind of Christ. That is what it means to be a Christian. This is, this is yours. God is working in you to will and to work. If you are in Christ, consider this. If you are in Christ, God is working in you the same desire for pleasing Him and the same ability to please Him that Christ Himself has. Let that sink in. That is phenomenal. That is what it means to be in Christ. You work as God is working in you. So what this means is, it's an announcement, it's an exhortation to say, go on. Keep going, prayerfully. Plead with God for His grace that He supplies based upon the promises here in His Word. Pray specifically, Lord, work in me greater desire to honor You. Lord, work in me the gracious ability to obey You in every area today. That's a great prayer to begin your day with. The faith and the life of the Christian it is active. It is vigorous. That's what I meant when I said this gospel is not stagnant. It's not just a historical event. It is a salvation that works. It changes. It causes God's purposes to be brought to their end. So church, do not grow weary in doing good. That is my exhortation to you this morning. Do not grow weary in doing good. In your fight with sin and in your pursuit of godliness, let the exhortation of Philippians 2, 12, and 13 be ringing loudly in your ears. And I understand it may seem that you are crawling along, making progression at the pace of a snail as you look at your own Christian life. I get that. But be encouraged at the same time. You are moving forward by the power and the grace of God. That is the only reason you're moving forward. That is the only reason you have a greater desire to love God today than you did before. That you have a renewed desire today to honor Him and to please Him. Because as Paul said earlier in this epistle, the same God who started a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion until the day of Christ. That is what it means to be in Christ. It's all of His grace that He began. It's all of His grace that He sustains. And we will sing loudly of that grace when we're brought into His presence. With that hope and with that anticipation, let's look to Him in prayer. Father, we thank You that You have given to us such tremendously good news and the announcement of what You have done for us in Christ. How good it is for our souls and for our minds to be renewed 
as we come and as we sing of these great truths, as we hear your word proclaimed, and even as we come to the table reminded of what you've given to us to feed our souls upon. So Lord, we pray for us, we pray for this church, and we ask that you would help us to continue to pursue. Help us to continue to move forward, dependent upon your grace, so overwhelmed that you work in us the desire and the ability to please you. Would you keep us from the foolishness of legalism? Would you keep us from the despair of thinking that that everything that we do somehow weighs upon your pleasure or displeasure with us and our standing before you as sons and daughters? Lord, would you ground us in the gospel? Would you overwhelm us overwhelm us with what it announces and Lord would you cause us to have a greater desire to please you and continue to work in us this great ability to honor you in all the ways that you call us to serve you in our practical lives and as we go into our week Lord thank you that we fight with blood-bought power to fight against sin and to pursue you Lord we look to you and we thank you that this is ours in Christ and we pray that we would know it more experientially and be found resting in it this week in Christ's name Amen.